1 Timothy 3, 14 through 16. I hope to come to see you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know that how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the word, world, taken up in glory. Good morning, and once again, so lovely to be here with all of you. Today, we got a lot to talk about. I think last week, Ray introed by saying he had a lot to talk about. He might go long, and it was relatively short. I don't think you're getting off that easy today. So let's open with a word of prayer here. Our gracious God, we are so eternally grateful for the songs we sang that talk about your grace. Lord God, we come before you with humble hearts and open minds. We pray that your spirit will work within us even now to give us ears to hear. That we will know and embrace your power in its fullness. In your name we pray. Amen. Probably should have turned to the passage before I walked up here. Two main points we're going to talk about today. I think that'll be enough. If you're a note taker, you'll probably want to get that pen handy. First two verses, 13 and, uh, 14 and 15, we're going to talk about the household of God, something we've been talking about a lot lately. And then we'll spend a lot of time on that last verse, the mystery of godliness, which is where we get our title from. Let's jump right into verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is Paul telling Timothy, I want to come to you. We've been reading this entire book. We've introed this entire series, which we titled, entitled the entire series, The Household of God. How Timothy is the spiritual son to Paul. How he left him behind to watch over the church here at Ephesus. But Paul's heart is for these people. He knows what's going to happen. He just met with the elders at the church of Ephesus. He knows the reports he's heard. He knows there are wolves seeking to come in to snatch the sheep away. That there are people who are preaching false doctrines. Mixing in myths and genealogies. These certain persons, right, who are seeking to engage in vain discussions, swerving away from the true gospel. And these vain discussions, they often surrounded the law. And we learned a few weeks ago what the purpose of that law was, right? But a lot of times these men were using the law as a bludgeon to take these new Christians, these new converts, and say it's not just the gospel, it's something else. And even next week, or the week after, we'll see in chapter 4 how people want to add to the scripture, add to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, something else, something of their tradition. Whether it's legalism, but they were sticking this millstone around the neck of these Christians. And we're going to see later today how Paul really dumbs things down and preaches the centrality of the cross. So Paul's concerned for this fledgling church here in Ephesus. And he's writing, he's saying, I hope to visit you. I want to come to you soon. My heart is for you. And I can relate to this as I was 
watching all the rodeo pictures on the WhatsApp last, WhatsApp last night, right? My heart is for this church. Paul's heart was for the church of Ephesus. But this can't wait. This is too important. I know what's going on there. I know who's among you. I'm worried for you. So I'm going to write this now. Hopefully soon I'll be back in person to shepherd you and guide you and lead you. But I'm going to write these words to you. And so he writes this letter. So we can look at what his focus is. What's so important that he has to write to them? Well, what he's told us, how to behave in the household of God. How to look out for false teachers so that people aren't led astray, so that some don't depart from the faith. Scott preached from chapter 2, and so did Paul, but we saw how he calls holy men to prayer without anger or quarreling. Lift up your holy hands. Pray without ceasing. Lead. Called men to fulfill the roles properly ordained to them in the church, not to abdicate their responsibility for godly leadership, either at home or in the church. And then Scott talked about how he called women to be modest in your dress and in your demeanor, not to seek attention, not to be showy or divisive, but be modest, be humble, right? And we learned that being silent doesn't mean keep your mouth shut. It means be peacemakers, seek peace. Don't be divisive. Don't be gossips. To respect the rightful order established by God for all of his children, for our good, right? For men and women, we've been created differently. This is probably no secret. That truth is being diminished in society, but we are created differently. Different strengths and weaknesses, equally valuable in the sight of the Lord. Equally adopted into his family, but different, different DNA, different makeups. And then we saw last week Bray preached how God establishes leaders in his church, deacons and elders, and how men are to be godly, not new converts, not greedy, dignified, to lead their families well so they can lead the church well, but also how the congregation is to respond, how we are to uphold, pray for them, follow their leadership, yes, as they've been called to serve and lead, as they will be held accountable for your souls. So when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he writes to Timothy's particularly, he's saying, I'm writing this to you. This is what I'm talking about. This is the what. This is what you are to do. And now we get to the why. Now we get to the why in verse 15. So that you may know how one ought to behave in the house of the God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So why does our behavior in the church matter so much? Paul writes a lot in Colossians, Ephesians, Timothy, even Romans, right? How the church ought to behave, how people ought to deal with one another in the household of God. We got a Rotary Club down the street. We got an Elks Lodge. We got Freemasons. They meet every week, right? They have rights of initiation. They have their governing bylaws. They have acts of service. They even have dues. Why does it matter how we act or how they act? Who cares? I'm reading this book called Why We Love the Church by Kevin DeYoung and Ted Cluck. And it's a pretty good book. It's a little old. I think 2009. I've read it before. I'm rereading it. And man, I love the church. I genuinely love and pray for each and every one of you that I know. Apparently, I'm not the only one, though, who loves the church. 
read an article about secular, non-theistic churches. I don't know if you've heard of those. It's primarily made up of people who have left the faith, but these people gather together. They denied the existence of God. They walked away from the faith at one time they may have held. Maybe they never did. They don't feel they need a Savior at all. They don't believe in God, but they miss the music and the worship and the community, not the worship, the music and the rituals in the community. So a couple quotes I found from this article. On Sundays, they gather in a semicircle in a rented room to affirm their self-created Ten Commandments and share their experience as secular people. On Tuesdays, the varying congregation holds a pub night. That sounds fun. Miss McCabe is a full-fledged clergy member and performs weddings and funerals for people who believe no God binds them together nor oversees their afterlife. What a fun funeral to go to. What's the difference between these secular clubs or this secular church and us? Is there any difference? The difference is everything we've been talking about for the past few months. Who we are as a church, what we're doing here, why we are here today. We are the church of the living God. We are the pillar and buttress of the truth. And that truth is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is every bit the awesome responsibility that sounds like. This is not to be taken lightly. This is why we as a church have been beating this drum so hard lately. This church is the pillar and buttress of God's truth and God's people. Architecturally speaking, that pillar, that buttress, that provides the shape and the support and the structure for the household of God, for the people of God. Paul's giving this blueprint on how to build the household of God. Because we're not like the Rotary Club or the Freemasons. And the biggest difference is our foundation. We're not built on our own truths. We are built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of our church, globally and locally. Matthew 7, 24 tells us, Everyone then who hears the words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Brothers and sisters, we are built on the solid rock. Amen. That is the difference. Everything else is built on sand. Everything else in your life or maybe someone else's life that you know that is built apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ is on sand and will not last the test of time. The church is not like an RV park. It's not a wide open field. Okay, It's not come and go as you please. There's hookups. Come get some water. Hey, dump off your sewage. Okay, that is not the church. The church is the pillar and buttress of the truth. This framework that God has established, we are to be keepers of the truth, to guard collectively against false teachers. This is why we are so important. We talk often, we say the church is not a museum of saints, but a hospital for sinners. And that's true. That's true. Come to Jesus and God with nothing but your sin, and he will forgive you. Don't make yourself right before you come to God. But make, your, make no mistake, we are the saints. We are the household of God. 
We are the chosen and ordained saints of the living God. What a privilege. When the Bible talks about his people, that's us. The holy, the righteous, the dignified, I'm sorry, the justified. Those who love one another. Those who do good works for each other and for the kingdom. In Philippians 4.21, it says, Greet every saint in Jesus Christ. That's us. We are these saints. We are the children of God. We are the household of God. There's no small beauty in that. We should take great joy in that fact that we collectively, universally with brothers and sisters throughout the world, we are the living church. We are the church of the living God. And we are to be teachers and defenders of that truth. That is an awesome gift and an awesome responsibility. This is the point that Paul is making. We are the ones chosen by God to his people to proclaim his name to all the nations, to proclaim his truth to all the nations. And then he continues on in verse 16 with an explanation of what that truth is. Turn with me, verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Here we see that the great mystery of godliness, and Paul immediately defines that phrase. He says, he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. All right, so break this down. We are the pillars and buttress of the truth. We are the ones to hold steadfast to this truth. And what, what is this truth? The saving gospel of Jesus Christ. John 1, first five verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word is with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Jesus was with God. Jesus was God. This is the doctrine of the Trinity, the triune God, three distinct persons, but all God. And we can see that Jesus was with God and came to earth. I don't need to explain this any further. I'm just going to turn this back over to the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's it. That's the truth. That's the gospel truth. Looking at this clause, we see this picture, this dual humanity of Christ, fully God, fully man. Vindicated, justified by the Holy Spirit. 
We see that picture in John when the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove at the baptism of John or by John's hand. And he was taken up into glory after his death on the cross, after he died brutally, was resurrected, after he had fulfilled his purpose of becoming that sacrifice and payment for our sins, right before he's taken up in heaven, what does he say to his disciples? Go to the world and proclaim this gospel to the whole creation. This is our great commission. So we see that phrase, the mystery of godliness, and it's defined clearly and succinctly in the gospel message. But I think a little bit more clarity comes from the nuance. As a new pastor, an interim pastor technically, an elder candidate, I've been grateful to be doing an absolute ton of studying and reading scripture and books on preaching and pastoring and the church. I'm immersed in it, and almost every good book I'm reading coalesces around a central theme, which is preach the word of God. Immerse yourself in study and preach it. Don't pick and choose topics. Don't look for the easy way out. Don't avoid hard subjects. Don't get hit with a flash of inspiration and try and find some verses that back me up. Study the word of God and explain it. A couple weeks ago, I was tired, and I preached, and I came home, and I took a nap, and I woke up, and then I was reading this book, and I don't remember who it was or I'd quote it, but it said about preaching, this is an old preacher, he said, read and explain, read and explain, read and explain, then go home and take a nap. I'm like, amen. I'm very blessed by that. One book I'm reading is called Expositional Preaching. It's a nine marks books. It's by David Helms. And what he says there is he gives warnings against a lot of different, um, I, I don't want to say bad ways of preaching, right, but different styles out there. Inebriated preaching, using the Bible like a drunk uses a lamppost uh, for support, not illumination. I thought that was a good one. But he also warns against impressionistic preaching, which is where you just read the Bible. I can read these points, and I can read six verses together and say, there's a point, there's a point, there's a point. Slap together a sermon around my thoughts and move on. And I don't want to do that. So with this in mind and a desire to faithfully preach the Word of God, I studied this passage carefully. And I came to this phrase, the mystery of godliness. It's kind of a unique phrase, the mystery of godliness decided to really study and understand what that phrase meant. And it took me down quite a path of study, which brings us to where we are today. So today we're going to look at a doctrine that has confused some. It's honestly angered some. And it has brought great, great rest and blessing to many. It's a doctrine that some have used to drive division or wedges between Christians, even John Wesley and George Whitfield. So today we're going to look at what we call the doctrines of grace. It's got other terms, other degrees, predestination, sovereignty of God, at least as it relates to salvation, Calvinism. So bear with me, brothers and sisters, as I bring you the word of the Lord. Give me grace if I fail to make this clear or to do justice to this text or this theology. Extend love and kindness to me as I preach this gospel. Please know that I am a flawed human. I'm limited in my own knowledge and understanding. As the Puritan Richard Baxter said, I am a dying man preaching to dying men and women. You're not off the hook. So let's look at the phrasing of those last few lines. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. It's universally accepted 
well, it should be. Unfortunately, that's also diminishing. Generally not preached solidly by mega church pastors with huge expense accounts and fancy cars. But it should be universally believed and understood in the Christian faith that not everyone is going to heaven. Scripture tells us that. Some will believe and be saved. For them, eternal salvation awaits. Some will not believe. And when they die, they will spend eternity separated from God in great suffering. That is true. That is not up for debate. So the question I have for you today is, why do some believe and others don't? What is it within some that causes them to hear the things of God and repent and be saved? While someone sitting right next to them, same church, same pew, maybe even the same family, will hear this gospel and reject it, even be antagonistic towards it, hate the truths of the Bible. I think the answer to that question lies within this meaning of the phrase, the mystery of godliness. So we saw how Paul defines that phrase in this passage, right? Very clearly, it's a great mystery of how God came down from heaven, became a man, took on human form, yet was still sinless in his life, fully God, fully man. We call that the incarnation That's certainly quite a mystery if you try to explain that mechanism, right? Hey, how did Mary get pregnant? Right? Oh, by God. Well, you know, you can't really explain that. So, yes, that's a mystery, right? Scripture tells us intrinsic sin is passed down from the Father. That was necessary for Jesus to be born of a virgin, to not have that earthly fatherly sin. Charles Spurgeon explained that phrase this way. He says, Paul mentions what the mystery of godliness is and declares that it concerns the manifestation of God in human flesh, that he might save men from their sin. Yeah. So clearly a solid understanding of this phrase, the mystery of godliness, is the great awe of God taking human form, becoming fully human without sin. But I think in that understanding and in the commentaries and a lot of the research I did on this, I think it makes it clear that it's a combination of the mystery of God taking that human form as well as how his righteousness is imputed on us. That is, how his righteousness pays for our sins, how we are made blameless in the sight of God even thousands of years before we were born, even thousands of years before we sinned. We know not everyone has this righteousness, and we know that because people are in hell. And unfortunately, even more will be going to hell. Jesus did not come to the cross to pay for the sins of those who then turn around and reject that payment. I have a 20-year-old son. He's a good driver. He's a firefighter. I'm not using him in a real example. But hypothetically, he could be an aggressive driver. Young men typically are. So if my son went out and got a speeding ticket, and he went to court for that ticket, and the judge says, well, there's a fine of $50. And I stood up and I said, you know what? My son's an idiot. My son's not an idiot. Please know that. My son's an idiot. He's guilty. He sped. I want this behind us. It's my vehicle. I pay the insurance. Let me pay the fine and let's close this case. Okay? The judge would say, sure. I'd pay the bailiff 50 bucks. Case closed. We'd move on with our lives. My son could not just stand up there and say, wait a minute. I want to pay also. I reject that payment. It's already paid. It's already in there, right? The judge will say, get out of here. It's fame. Go deal with someone else, right? 
Once that fine has been paid, the judge has no recourse to collect that fine again. Legally, he could not. So likewise, scripturally and logically, Jesus did not die for the sins of those who would ultimately end up in hell. Otherwise, he would have spilled his blood in vain. He would have died on the cross for someone who said, nope, I'm I'm still going to choose to go to hell. We know that the only way to end up in eternal damnation is to remain guilty of these sins, to die with unpaid sins. Romans 6.23 tells us the wages of sin is death. So the interpretation of this phrase, the mystery of godliness, isn't just the incarnation. It's not just like, oh, that is weird. How did God come down and become little eight-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus? Right? There's more to it than that. The interpretation to this phrase is completely tied to the second half of that dilemma. How sin is paid for by the work on the cross and through our belief in Jesus Christ and how that work of redemption comes to some but not to all. John Calvin on his commentary in this passage says, For it pleased God to hide the means of our redemption from them to the end that his goodness might be, made, might be so much the more wonderful to all creatures. Clearly, there's more to this mystery of godliness than just the incarnation. It's also the mysterious work of salvation. You see on the screen, the Greek word for mystery in this phrase is mysterion. I'm sure there's a more um, accented way of pronouncing that, but mysterion is good enough for me. You and I sitting here, we understand the meaning of the word mystery, right? Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine. Watching a true crime drama or a podcast, following along. Who done it, right? That's the mystery. Kids opening a present you get for your birthday. It's all wrapped up. What is it? I don't know. It's a mystery, right? That's right. We have a correct understanding of the mystery, the unknown. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not the mystery. The entire scripture is exceedingly clear on what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. We literally just talked how we are the pillars and buttress of the truth. We can't do that if we don't know the truth. How can we discern false teachers from the gospel if we don't know what the gospel is? We know the truth. Paul lays it out for us right here, as we see in this verse. The gospel is not hard. It's simple. There's a story in Acts chapter 16. We meet the Philippian jailer. The Philippian jailer, Paul and Silas were imprisoned, and a great earthquake comes, and it shakes the doors open. And it loosens their shackles, and yet they stand there. And the jailer, thinking he's going to lose his job and maybe his head, he comes down and is amazed that these guys are still here. And he sees something different in them. And we pick up the story in verse 30. He says, then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Let me give you another example. In Acts chapter 10, we see Cornelius the Centurion. Cornelius, it says, was a God-fearing man. But he was a Gentile. He did not know Jesus. And we know you can't be saved except through the blood of Jesus Christ. So through a series of miraculous events, Peter ends up in his house. 
And Peter's talking to him, and he says in verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God is with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after we rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Goes on to tell us that immediately the Holy Spirit fell on them. They were baptized right there in the name of Jesus Christ. In every instance I see in scripture where the gospel is presented, it's not presented mysteriously. It doesn't get bogged down in the incarnation. It's just stated and assumed as fact. We see this here with a jailer. We see this with a centurion. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not the mystery. And just to be perfectly clear, in case anyone needs to hear it put as succinctly as possible, you are a sinner. We are all sinners. We are born and bred sinners. The penalty of sin is death and death in hell, eternal damnation. But God, desiring to save us, sent his son Jesus Christ to be born here on earth, fully God, fully man, to live a sinless life to die on the cross, to make that payment for our sins, to satisfy the judge. And if we believe in him, we can have forgiveness of our sins and be saved. That's it. It's simple. Do you see how simple this is? This is not the mystery. This is not the mystery. But in my study, I cross-referenced this word mysterion, and I found several places it was used. So we're going to take a quick look at them. Matthew 13, Jesus gives us the parable of the sower. I've referenced that many times in past sermons, so I'm not going to recap it all now. But this parable is about those who will explicitly hear the word of God and believe and those who will hear the word of God and not believe. Keep that fact in mind. So we see in Matthew 13, 10, Then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? These disciples... They walked with God. They had this special insight. They knew him to be the son of God. They had seen him create, uh, you know, raise people from the dead, heal people from the sick, cast out demons. They knew the power of this God. And at least in this instance, maybe they were a little bit frustrated or confused. Like, God, you can do anything. Why can't you just make them believe? Verse 11, he answered them. To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. The word secrets here, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, that is that word mysterion. So when he's explaining to the disciples why he is intentionally not giving a direct answer, why he's intentionally saying there's a mystery of who's going to hear and be saved and who will not, 
He tells his disciples, not everyone has equally been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. Some will see, but not see. Some will hear, but not hear. It will fall on deaf ears. Some will hear it. Some will see evidence of it, and they will not understand. Or like the Pharisees, they will despise it. They will see God work miracles. Jesus work miracles and then walk away conspiring how they can destroy him. So put a pin in that one. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And I, this is Paul writing, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's saying, I didn't bog this down with academic language. I didn't make it hard to understand. I didn't pepper it or layer it with all sorts of deep theology and truths. Didn't bring to you this mystery of the incarnation and explain, ask you to explain it. No, I put the cookies on a bottom shelf so that a toddler could reach them. I made it simple. Continuing on, verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He said, I did this so the Holy Spirit may be made known to you, that your faith, that your belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ would not come down to your own wisdom, for your own intellect, because you're good enough or smart enough or educated enough or went to college but that your faith would rest in the power of God. Verse 6, he says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So that phrase, again, the secret and hidden wisdom of God, secret there is mysterion. And it's plain as day, Paul tells us this hidden treasure, that's no secret at all. It's plain, it's simple, it's basic. I presented this gospel to you as it is, simple. So simple a child could understand it, yet many will hear and not believe. And what does that say there at the end? God decreed before the ages, before the ages for our glory. Let's look at this one last example here. Ephesians 3, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through the blood, his forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Please note the repeated uses of that. His grace he lavished on us. Jesus Christ, we have the basics of the gospel, right? Forgiveness of sin, redemption by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is not the mystery part. Verse 9, we see the mystery part. Making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So again, that word, this mystery of his will. 
This passage from Ephesians, I think, makes it pretty clear. Let's just diagram this out. Verse 4, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, he predestined us to be sons through Jesus Christ. This is predestined. He did not react. He did not accept. He chose us before the foundations of the world. Before God said, let there be light, he chose us. Before God created Adam and Eve, he chose us. Before Adam and Eve brought sin into this world, making a necessity for a savior, he chose us. And he chose us according to the purpose of his will. It is not by our own wisdom or understanding, but by his. If this is a new concept for you, I understand this is a lot to take in. I do. I realize that, right? But you guys have to understand, in every context where I search this word mysterion, nearly every context, it wasn't related to the incarnation of Jesus. It wasn't related to the gospel. It was related to salvation and predestination. Who will hear with gladness and who will hear and reject? I didn't go looking to preach this sermon. I looked to study the word of God and explain it. I could go on and on. Romans 11 is another great example. It's talking about how Israel turned their back on God and lost the stranglehold they had on God as his chosen people and how God made salvation for the Gentiles. I encourage you to read that letter later, but a couple of highlights here. Verse 2, it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Right? In verse 7, it says, Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. God gave them eyes that they would not see and ears that they would not hear. In verse 25, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you unaware of this mystery. This entire chapter is this mystery about God coming to his people and who he will come to and who will hear him and not, not believe. So what's this mystery? We know it's not the incarnation. Because that honestly still remains a mystery. Go ahead and explain it. Right? This mystery referred to is how God saves some and not others. How some are elect and some have been hardened. How God gave some eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear. So this mystery of godliness, this is a multi-pronged mystery. Yes, how God became man. How he took on our sins and paid the price for sin. But also... Why the gift of faith has been given to some and not others. Why God has chosen some for his glory to adopt as his children and why God has given some ears that would not hear and eyes that would not see. Brothers and sisters, I hope you see scripturally, this is what it says. God gives eyes that would not see. God gives ears that would not hear. Some of you, many of you honestly looking around this room hear this and be like, yep, amen, exactly what I believe. It's what I know to be true. Not news. In case you're unaware, this is not a universally held belief. There are many good and godly and righteous people who do not share this belief system. These are fellow saints in the house of the God. Brothers and sisters I love dearly, consider godlier than myself. No judgment. But there are some to whom this may be a challenging sermon who struggle to believe as I do in how God works out salvation. And for good reason. As humans with intellect and reason, we at one time heard the gospel preached to us, 
And somehow it seemed good to us, and we believed. Whether it was instantly, you know you're a wretched sinner, you are presented with a saving Savior, a loving Savior, and you accept and believe, or sometimes slowly kicking and screaming till finally God gets a stranglehold of you and you can't do anything else but accept it. But in the end, each one of us, either intellectually or emotionally, did cry out to God, Jesus, I'm a sinner, save me. So our personal experience seems at odds with the teaching that God does the work of salvation. Our personal autonomy, our complete and willful approach to everything we do in our life holds us back mentally. We have free will, right? We can do anything we want. Let's address that by recapping really quickly this mystery of godliness, looking at all the points we get together, and we're wrapping up, I promise, for the honors. Parable of the sower. Jesus tells his disciples, it is not for everyone to understand. First Corinthians, we see a simple, simple gospel being presented. But we see that it's by the power of God alone that some have faith and some don't. And in Ephesians, we see as plainly as it gets, God chose you before the foundations of the world. Individually, by name, by social security number, by DNA, God chose you. He predetermined who he was going to adopt unto himself. And he's adopting people to himself for his own choosing, for his own reasons, according to the purposes of his will. Our understanding of God's purposes, our agreeing with God's decisions or his purposes, our acceptance of that doesn't factor in. He is God and we are not. The mystery of his will set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. None of this is accidental. You're not sitting here in church this Sunday morning randomly. You're not even saved because it sounded pretty good to your intellectual mind. You did not happen to hear the gospel and decide to believe it on your own, of your own accord. Mind you, this is exactly how it feels, right? That's often exactly how it happens. This is why we are commanded to go to the nations and preach the gospel, why I love evangelism, why we are all called to share the good news of the saving grace of Jesus Christ to the lost among us. Even up here in North Idaho, there are plenty. But the response of who will hear and who will believe That's the work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything. Only God gives the growth. It's not the messenger who can create life. It's not even the hearer who gives himself life. It is God who gives life everlasting. I'm moving along because of time. Matthew 22, the parable of the wedding feast We see many are invited to this wedding feast of the king, and many refuse to come. The king is inviting them directly. They kill his messenger, and they refuse to come. And it ends with this phrase, many are called, but few are chosen. What a phrase, many are called, but few are chosen. The sower casts many seeds. Not many sprout up into healthy, productive crops. The decision is not on the seed. It is not on the one who plants, and it is not on the one who waters. Those who ultimately enter the kingdom of heaven are those who have been chosen by God. Yes, they exercise their own autonomous decision-making. But we would not be able to if we were not first called by the Holy Spirit. That term there, by the way, would be called regeneration. It is not, if not chosen by God from the foundation of earth, we would not come to Christ. 
If this is a hard or confusing message for you, that's okay. Please know that I still love you dearly. And I firmly believe you are a dear brother and sister in Christ. This gospel has been called divisive, but it really isn't. It really does not need to be. I believe this to be an essential doctrine. I mean, this is not an essential doctrine. I believe this to be a beautiful doctrine, but this is not essential. Belief in this doctrine does not determine your salvation. If you've been paying attention, only God does, right? So if you're here and you're listening and you don't fully understand or accept this doctrine, that's okay. You're beyond welcome here forever. I will still love you. But I do encourage you, like I had two years ago, study scripture. Seek to understand what you believe and why you believe it, and then show that scripturally. There are many godly preachers and theologians in both camps. To me, this is the most beautiful and freeing of gospel truths. It gives me great strength and comfort because God does not leave me to my own devices. Apart from God, I am a sinful, wretched man. And I don't just say that. That is true. Apart from God, I would desire every evil thing in this world. I would seek fame and fortune and glory and pleasure. Apart from God, I would not choose him. I promise you that. But God is sovereign. If you sit here and believe that God is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-present, if you believe that what Scripture tells us, the hairs on your head are numbered, that not a sparrow falls from the sky apart from the Father. Can you or I determine our eternal destiny apart from him? For those of you who are in strongly in one camp or the other, I urge you, give grace. Give grace to the other side. Let me leave you with a story about John Wesley and George Whitfield. You probably recognize those names, great preachers, great men of faith. George Whitfield believed as I do in predestination and God's sovereignty and the work of salvation. Rather, I should say, I believe as he did. John Wesley was very antagonistic to this doctrine, and they had a heated rivalry. They would write pamphlets, and they would preach sermons, and it appeared to many that they were very much at odds as they de defended their positions. One day... After Whitfield's decease, John Wesley was timidly approached by one of the godly band of Christian sisters who had been brought under his influence and who loved both Whitfield and himself. Dear Mr. Wesley, may I ask you a question? Yes, of course, madame, by all means. But dear Mr. Wesley, I am very much afraid what the answer will be. Well, madame, let me hear your question and then you will know my reply. At last... After not a little hesitation, the inquirer trembly asked, Dear Mr. Wesley, do you expect to see dear Mr. Whitfield in heaven? A lengthy pause followed, after which John Wesley replied with great seriousness, No, madame. His inquirer at once exclaimed, Ah, I was afraid you would say so. To which John Wesley added with intense earnestness, Do not misunderstand me, madame. George Whitfield was so bright a star in the firmament of God's glory and will stand so near the throne that one like me, who am less than the least, will never catch a glimpse of him. Let that be the attitude we have. Let nothing come between our love for one another, our love for all the saints. Let nothing separate us from the love of our God. Let's pray. Father God, I'm grateful that you have chosen me, that you have saved me, 
that you have filled me with your Holy Spirit. They have you ordained all of us to be here together this morning to hear your word preached, Lord God. I thank you for the work on the cross and the salvation that it brings to the lost. I pray that we will be instruments of your salvation, the means of your grace, proclaiming your gospel message to all who will hear. Be with us as we go about our weeks. In your name we pray. Amen. Choose you, for that could never.